From NPM, the National Association of Pastoral Musicians, this is episode 127 of Ministry Monday. Ministry Monday is a weekly podcast about music, ministry, and liturgy, produced by the National Association of Pastoral Musicians, or NPM. What is NPM? NPM is a national association that fosters the art of musical liturgy. The members of NPM serve the Catholic Church in the United States as musicians, clergy, liturgists, and other leaders of prayer. For more information, go to npm.org forward slash join. Have a question? Email us anytime at ministrymonday at npm.org. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Ministry Monday. I'm your host, Amanda Bruce. Allow me to share a story about a trio of three sisters who created a band called Haim, H-A-I-M, based on their last name. These Los Angeles-based sisters have been producing music for most of their life, but have been incredibly popular since the early 2010s, and their indie pop rock music continues to grow in popularity and in lyrical wisdom in the experiences that they face as musicians. So, for example, their most recent album, which was released this summer, is titled Women in Music, Part 3. The title originates from a phrase that they heard at the time in almost every interview. So what's it like to be a woman in music? The album itself shares plenty of their signature style, but it also alludes lyrically several times to the bias that they've experienced as a female musical trio in their life. Now, why do I mention a group that is clearly has nothing to do with liturgy or pastoral music? Well, personally, Haim is one of my favorite bands, and Ever since this summer, I've been thinking about that question, what's it like to be a woman in music, as it applies to pastoral musicians today, but not necessarily in the way that you may think. I've been a pastoral musician since I was essentially 10 years old, and I've had plenty of times when people approached me and alluded to the same idea. What's it like to be a woman in music? turned into, what's it like to be a woman working for the church? Or what's it like to be a wife and a full-time pastoral musician? These questions challenge me, both in good and bad ways, but it opens the door for conversation. And in fact, it opened the door for two of my conversations today. Today, I have the privilege of speaking to two pastoral musicians who also compose music for the church. They both share stories of the Holy Spirit guiding their compositions and their time in ministry, especially through the lens of motherhood and as a woman working for the church. But the message ahead is clear. We as women use our unique experiences to support the church, serve the church, and allow the Spirit to guide and flow through us. But I hope that by the end of this, we can honor the uniqueness we as women offer without putting our ministry into a category of, quote, 
female pastoral musician or to bring it back home, women in music. So first I speak to Nancy Douglas, a pastoral musician working in the Camden, New Jersey diocese, and most specifically Cherry Hill. Nancy has been a working pastoral musician for over 25 years, along with supporting her local NPM chapter as a board member and more. Nancy shares the circuitous route where God and God's music found her. I'm so glad to be talking with you today because the topic today is uh, women in music or women composers. And before we started, I said to you, you know, I, I don't want this necessarily to be one big question of how is it being a woman in music, but I really would love to talk about before we even get to the fact that you are a woman, I'd love to hear your journey in pastoral music first off. So how did you first get involved in pastoral music? Well, first of all, thank you, Amanda, for having me today. Um, it's really a pleasure and an honor to be here talking with you. Um, so I actually, um, I grew up in North Carolina and I wasn't really involved in music or in church music um, for many years growing up until I got to college and I uh, joined campus ministry at our Newman Center at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And um, through a sort of quirky turn of events, I ended up in one of the main leadership roles in campus ministry as a sophomore. And um, the pastor had really urged us very strongly to get involved in liturgical ministry to serve as role models for uh, the college students um, really in general. So I started racking my brains. What can I do? What can I do? Well, I guess I have an okay voice. So I joined the choir. And one thing led to another. I started accompanying at mass sometimes. I was the choir director for the student mass for a couple of years. Um, went to graduate school in um, Evanston, Illinois and joined their Shield Center, which is their Newman Center. And I continued um, in volunteering in music ministry. And that sort of led to um, professional um, jobs in uh, music ministry and um, I've served in a couple of different parishes as music director and assistant and also in uh, diocesan offices here, worship offices. So um, it's been kind of, uh, uh, I won't say bumpy because it's been a good journey, but um, it certainly wasn't a journey from point A to point B, especially considering that um, my education is not in music or liturgy at all. Um, I actually have an education degree to teach foreign language. Wow. Oh, wow. But it's so interesting too, that you got started because someone invited you yes, and they, you know, we always say that of course in pastoral ministry, like, you know, most people begin because they were invited and it was something that you started as a young person. And then it just continued to flow through your life. And like you said, kind of like maybe a little bit of a circuitous route wasn't necessarily directly A to B, but here it is in your life still today. Yes, personal invitation has really been um, important to me in my journey in ministry. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> um, so of course, too, you are a composer. So how did you start composing? So um, the first song I wrote was about uh, seven years ago. And I remember because um, I was really inspired 
during the MPM convention in Washington, D.C. in 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't like a, you know, a lightning bolt that struck me or anything at the convention. Um, I remember participating in particular in one of the um, events in the evening, one of the music. Uh, I don't remember if it was a prayer service or a, a concert, but everyone on the stage, you know, was having just such um, a wonderful experience. And so was everyone in the assembly. And I just remember thinking that it would be amazing to be part of creating something like this. And so I was on a high, of course, after the convention. And uh, about a week later, I woke up in the middle of the night and I just said, I'm gonna write a song. I'm gonna write some kind of a song for liturgy. Um, And so I just really felt this compulsion um, to to do this. so I started reading some scriptures. The Psalms have always been very comforting and uplifting for me. So I, I ended up um, turning to the Psalms and um, locating a, a particular passage that spoke to me. And um, so my first song developed from there. And it's been kind of slow going because I certainly have other things going on in my life. Um, but it, it's been that sort of um, inspirational pop up every once in a while. For me to to write something else. So you've been writing music off and on for what seven years? That's right. What are some of your favorite pieces that you've written? Well, the first one that I just mentioned is called "Rock of My Heart," um, and it's a like a, a praise, a song of praise uh, for God's faithfulness. So that that's kind of a favorite. Um, another one I wrote for my son's confirmation. It's called "Breathe in Me." And it's um, based on the Holy Spirit prayer of St. Augustine. Mm-hmm. So that one's also really special to me um, because it's, um, it's got personal meaning you know, for that. And actually the most recent one I wrote, it's called I Shall Do Good. It's based on the mission prayer of St. John Henry Newman. Mm. And that was a really neat one to explore because uh, the Newman Center has played such a big role in my life and mm-hmm. in my ministry. So mm-hmm. um, that was that was a really fun one to, to dig deep into. Wow, that's neat. And it's neat too that you can kind of commemorate moments in your life with song. I love that you wrote one for your son's confirmation. Yeah, it's great. Oh, that is so sweet. That's wonderful. Let's talk just a little bit about, of course, the role you have as a composer as a woman, as a female, of course. So let me just ask you, um, you know, in your journey to be being a composer, being a pastoral musician in the level that you have, um, are there any struggles that you have found in being first off a pastoral musician today of any gender or any identification? Are there any struggles that you have found? Well, I think in terms of being a pastoral musician in particular now with um, the pandemic, everything's been turned upside down. I'm not currently working because of the pandemic and um, those that are in pastoral music positions are being challenged and called to evangelize in completely new ways. Mm-hmm. Technology is really, uh, has really been a blessing with live stream masses and mm-hmm. you know all that. Uh, on a personal level, um, in terms of my journey to being a composer, I am, um, it really, it took me a, a long time to get to the point where I was willing to um, take risks and uh, to really believe that 
I have something that I can offer. Um, I've always been really shy and sort of self-effacing. Um, there's um, a wonderful quote that um, I, it kind of encapsulates my, I feel my journey over the last several years. Um, it's by Anais Nin. And she says, the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. Wow. And I, I really feel like that, that speaks to me. And um, I have finally come to a point where I realized that I, I'm not um, promoting myself as such when I you know, try to publish my music and talk about it, but rather I'm, I'm listening to a little voice inside me that it turns out is the Holy Spirit that's been trying to you know, guide me and gently pull me and push me um, into ministry in a new way. What would you say to someone who's listening, who is maybe feeling that, that, that tugging, that insistence from the spirit in whatever way it may not be composing, but what would you say to them to help encourage them kind of take that next step? I think one of the things that I've learned how to do is sit with an idea or um, something that comes up in my head or in my heart um, and not react right away, but sit and reflect and try to discern, is this something in me that I'm trying to do out of selfishness or fear, or is this really something that um, is for my betterment and the betterment of those around me? So um, I would say prayer and patience are really, really important, whether that means, you know, waiting half an hour to make your choice, um, you know, or take your risk, or it could mean waiting weeks or months um, to really discern what that call is for you. So let's transition a little bit into the call, if you will, um, and also into the pews, also, if you will. So let, let's talk a little bit about the fact that, like I have said, this, you know, this, this particular episode is called Women in Music, or so as we look as pastoral musicians in music, we see as of right now, a dominant trend or a dominant existence where a lot of our music is written by male composers. And I'm not dissing male composers, but is there anything you think we could do as pastoral musicians to focus not just on the quality of music and the theology behind the music, but also who is writing the music? Do you think that's something that we should or could be attentive to? Absolutely, Amanda. I think um, for so long, the music that we've been singing has been by the same composers over and over who, by virtue of their place in history, have been largely male composers of you know, the Caucasian race. And um, I think it's very valuable to um, be more intentional about our choices and to allow for the fact that there are many, many wonderfully talented composers of different races and of both genders who have so much to contribute. So I think it's very important to be open to new songs, but also to new composers who have so much to offer. I think so too. 
So as we wrap up our time together today, are there any other last thoughts that you would want to share with our listeners? Anything you kind of want to have as a call to action to them? Well, I would say um, if you're thinking of doing something, if there's been something sort of tugging at you, um, go for it because that's probably the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Um, and really, I would encourage you to to have that that courage and confidence to follow whatever your dream may be, because um, God's the one that put it in your heart. Well, with that spirit, I'm going to go sit in silence for a little bit today and uh, take your advice and see where the spirit is guiding me. And to be truthful too, I'm going to look a little bit more closely at who's composing my music as well. So those are the things that I'm going to be working on. Thanks to you. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for your time today. And thank you for your ministry. And thank you also for your encouragement to help us to listen and to learn. Thank you so much, Amanda. Next on the podcast, I speak to Jeanette Sullivan Whitaker. Jeanette is a composer based in the Diocese of Oakland, California, and has served in active ministry throughout the East Bay Diocese of Oakland since childhood. Jeanette, who is published by GIA, WLP, and OCP, shares the power that the Spirit has created within her as a composer and as a minister for her whole life. Jeanette, thank you for talking with us on Ministry Monday today. It is truly been a pleasure because those of you don't know, you wouldn't know, um, Jeanette and I have been talking already for almost 25 minutes because you are so enjoyable to talk to. So thank you for going on Ministry Monday today. Oh, thank you for having me. So, you know, as we start, I kind of want to address the elephant in the room, if you will. And, you know, when I was thinking about this episode, I really didn't want it to be just a 20 minute talk about what's it like to be a woman in music, because I don't really think that that's what it would, would best represent the topic at hand. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yes, I do. I do. Um, I think that um, we need to lift up all those who write music and support and validate, support and validate the ministry of the composer for what it is. And that is prophetic and homiletic and, and evangelical um, because what the composer does is gives us the vocabulary that we need to have a conversation with God and with one another. If we only take the words of part of us, and not the other part of us, then our vocabulary and our conversation is incomplete. We need to take all of it seriously. We need to let the preachers preach. And some of those preachers are women. Um, I, I think that we can start, we can, we can stop referring to a woman composer as a woman composer. Because you <laughs> certainly don't say, oh, how do you do? I, you must be one of those man composers. <laughs> We don't do that. Exactly. So let's not do this. That a long right. time ago, even in my lifetime, they used to use the term lady doctor. Oh. We moved past that. Yeah. A lady doctor. No, it's a doctor. It's not yeah. a lady doctor. It's not a man doctor. It's a doctor. Right. So we need to stop with the use of those qualifiers. I think that that is the only way we are going to move past that to a place where we evaluate a person's work on its own merit based on their kinship with the human family rather than as representatives of a marginalized subset of that, that uh, community or some kind of a messenger from an emerging minority. We're not a minority. 
If you look at who the women are in the church, in the congregations, more than half the congregation, when it's full and it's not pandemic, are women. Right. That means that most of the people in congregation, when they look up there and they see men doing all the FaceTime, they're not seeing themselves. So that's, that's what I feel about the whole conversation. It is important that we have it, but it's also important that we move ahead in with a, from a standpoint of validating the work, the work itself that these people are doing. Now, I understand that not everybody, everybody's unique and beautiful and worthwhile, all people are. And some are equipped to write music for the church's worship, but not all, and that's okay. If you put woman in there, all women are unique, all are beloved and beautiful and worthwhile, but not all women are equipped to write music for the church's worship. So I think that publishing industry needs to uh, resist the urge to disproportionately stack the decks and artificially put in more women just for the sake of optics. Mm. It's about more than that. It doesn't need to be artificially corrected. We need to seek out the prophetic voices and let that music stand on its own feet. Um, it always needs to be liturgically viable, theologically sound, well-crafted, and accessible to the people, but it doesn't necessarily have to have that stamp on it that says, written by a woman. Right, right. It just needs to be good music. Right, good music. That's pretty much what I have to say about that. Well, good music is a good place to start. A little bit away from what you just said, which by the way, was awesome. But I'd love to learn a little bit more about you as a pastoral musician, woman or man, doesn't matter, just pastoral musician. So how did you get involved with pastoral music and pastoral ministry? Well, I'm native Californian and na native of the Diocese of Oakland. So I've always been involved in the music here. Um, I grew up in a family of 11 siblings and I'm in the upper half of the family that are mostly boys. So I was essentially raised by wolves. And I've always been a tomboy. I've always had to scrap and fight my way in that sea of males. So there, there's that context. My parents were both musicians. My mom was self-taught, or my dad was self-taught. My mother had training. Um, but all of us Sullivan kids had our first experience of public expression of music in church. So later on, the brothers branched off to having a disco band and rock bands. But I always was in church music. Whenever I sang in church, I was a swan. I loved it. I lived it. I breathed it. Um, but my first steps in composing music um, came when I got a job at a small, very poor Episcopal church. They didn't have enough money to pay me, let alone buy music. Mm. So I started to write music out of need. They didn't have any music. So I would write little one-pager, two-part harmony things and give it to the choir. And nobody had to pay anything for that. Um, they still, at that church, 40 years later, they still sing the mass setting that I wrote for them. Oh, I wow. Yeah, but, song per, song, but the songwriting part, the real composing part, of, really emerged as a result of motherhood. I didn't have the urge to write music, really, until after my son was born. And I can remember the first sacred music piece. It was a setting of the transfiguration of that, this is my son, my beloved, listen to him. And it was like a, a jazz ballad for piano, flugelhorn and voice. And I was the singer, of course, but it, I, was, I remember how corny it was. I was like holding my baby as he was fussing, 
premiering the song in church singing, this is my son, this is my beloved. (laughs) That is so cheesy and so corny, but it reminds me that motherhood was really that way of um, being transported out of my self-centeredness into this world where your world is completely, uh, or you are, your child is completely dependent on you for safety and comfort and love and milk. It's very life. That's something about that opened that door wide open for him and I couldn't stop writing music after that. I can't explain it, but that is when it started. Um, after leaving that Episcopal church where I was working, I returned to my Catholic roots and I kept writing music. And again, the motivation was always what is needed. We don't have anything for the sprinkling rites. So write something for the sprinkling rite. Wrote a piece of music. And when I sent it up to be published by OCP, this was in the days before I had a computer. So it was the handwritten manuscript. And it literally had water droplets dried all over it because they had been used. And I just grabbed one of the choir's copies, sent it up to them. And, and it's published now. It's called Springs of Water, published by OCP. But it was always, my motivation was always what is needed. What is needed for this moment? What is needed? Is, is this a, a yawner of a psalm? And should I write something different? And now I have all the psalms set, all the whole three-year cycle and feasts and solemnities and sacramental music and everything. But about 90% of my music is not published. Wow. The music that you know is the, the small body of work that is published. I've never been very good at promoting myself to the publishers. So I'm really, really grateful to OCP and World Library slash GIA because they gave me this chance and they got a few of my pieces out there and it's really wonderful. And I know a lot of people think that the only thing I ever wrote is here at this table or in every age, but there's (laughs) like one little tile on the disco ball, you know, (laughs) a whole lot. And it's in use. I give it away. I give it to parishes of where people that I know are directing and they need something. I say, here, try this. Hmm. So I love that. I love that. Um, I don't do it for the um, the glory, I guess, of pub- getting published. It's just something that I, I am and I can't, I just breathe it and I can't help doing it. So, um, I, and I think a lot of my colleagues, male or female, can probably relate that we write for a purpose, mm-hmm. which is what makes this so hard now. Sitting in a room with no community to write for. It's it it just threw me in completely reverse and it's hard. It's really, really hard for me to have the heart and the the motivation for writing a song where I can imagine a room full of people singing at the top of their lungs, and that's the instrument I'm writing for. Mm-hmm. And suddenly that instrument was ripped out of my being, and it's really, really hard for me to find a way to keep doing it. Um, but I still try and I pray about it, and I know that that will return as long as I have breath there's hope that that will return and it will return to all of the people who are those prophetic voices that write music out there so um anyway that was uh that's sort of how I got from the beginnings to here and Mm -hmm. retirement and not retirement and when it comes to composing that I will never (laughs) (laughs) what are not to put you on the spot but what are like a couple maybe two or three of your favorite compositions published or unpublished that you've written? I love in every age. 
and mostly because of what people, what the, the church, what God, what the spirit has given back to me is far less or far more than anything that I ever wrote down, but I'm, I'm grateful. And I'm, I do have a special love for that song. Um, I love, um, I have a setting of the 23rd Psalm and I swore I was never gonna write one because who can beat the ones that are already out there, but I do have one, a setting of the 23rd Psalm that is so of my heart. And I think that that's one of my favorite ones too. And it's sort of slowly getting out there in spite of me, um, it's getting out there. <laughs> so I love that and um, I love Day of Peace. Day of Peace is from a time that um, was difficult for me as a mother of a set of a junior high kid mm. when all the kids at Columbine were, were that, that it was because of that mm. and the families were devastated and the children were all acting out in school and my son came back come home from school and the teacher crying he was crying and the teacher called me and said they're just they're just the parents are all um, out of sorts and hopeless and frightened and angry and and that song came from that mm. as a way to let us work, let us pray, let us live for peace. And unfortunately, that song has come back again and again and again with every tragedy. Mm -hmm. It has like a spike in use and a spike in sales and all that awful stuff because it doesn't end. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. so that's a really, really special, special song to me. And the little child that was born the day I wrote it is going to college now. And she's... Um, so there's a little dedication underneath the title that, and that, so that's, it's like a family member to me and mm -hmm. I, and it changes and gains, gains more depth and more meaning as the, as the years go by. So I, I gotta say that's probably one of them too. That's beautiful. So really my last question to you is clearly we need to break down the barriers of female composer, you know, like, like you said, lady doctor need, need to, you know, we need to move past it, but it's so clear to me though, that you bring, you bring your experiences as a woman and a mother to what you do and your craft and your skill. And is there anything that you like closing thoughts you would want to share with the listeners in terms of pastoral musicians who honestly, they may not be composers, you know, that are listening to this and maybe they're just pastoral musicians who they just want to make sure they're doing right by their congregation and that they're picking music that inspires on many levels. I mean, do you have any reflections or thoughts to help, help us make sure that we pick music that is diverse and inspiring and represents the entire body of Christ? Yeah, I think we need, first of all, it's a, it's a real job and it's an important and sobering job to seek it out. Um, but there needs to be a balance. I don't think we throw away the whole legacy that we that has brought us this far. Um, I compare it to the, we used to have something called a photo album in my day. And back in my day, uh, we had photo albums. And at the, at the beginning of the photo albums are the black and white pictures you don't ever just take those out and throw them away and then scan only the color pictures and keep those on your computer, throw this, the, no, you keep, you keep a hold of where you've been. You stand firmly where you are and you look with clear eyes into the, into the abyss that lies ahead. And all of that makes us who we are. Every bit of that makes us who we are. Now, 
I, I am not a fan of changing music that was written in 1812 to reflect the texts of today. I'm not really a fan of that. I'd like using the original texts because that shows us in a sobering way where we've been. But then in the same liturgy, you can put in a piece like All That, Are, All that Is Hidden by Bernadette Farrell and you can see the, you can see the whole photo album of who we are and who we've been. There's that. There's also um, a lot of, um, I think that we need to study the history of what women have done in hymn writing, in, in music, in hymn, the music of our faith. If you look at the music in the Victorian era, most of the music that was written in, in, for the church, the texts were written by the women because they were the Sunday school teachers. So the music has a catechetical uh, gra gravity, gravitas to it. It has to have that. Uh, it has to serve that. We have to be careful about only praising. And this is male and female, but um, I think that we have to be careful about being honest with God when we cry out. And women can cry out in a certain way that men, it might not occur to men to do. So our litanies, our ways of describing injustice, the, the words, the language is going to be different when, when viewed or, or generated through the experiences of a woman. We need to pay attention to that. We need, I, I think what we're mostly talking about is the text, text writing. It needs to be, we need to be attentive to the, the trials and the struggles of all whose cries are unheard. And some of that, that might be people of color, that might be LGBT people, people who have, have been under the radar for too long, could be women. I think in our nation right now, those people are rising up. And I think the music can comment on that. And that music can comment on that, whether it's written as observed by a man or by a woman. But the men need to comment on it. The men need to maybe uh, have conversations with women who write text and look, look for ways to always be more enlightened. Always be willing to ask, enlighten me. Mm. What's it like to be you? And then listen and take notes. I think that's what we need to do um, and not pretend that we're farther along than we are, but don't discount how far we've come because it's a long, long, long way. I can tell you that because I was alive in the 60s and I was born in 58. I can tell you we've come a long way. Um, even the beginning of Star Trek, to boldly go where no man has gone before, that became in the 80s to boldly go where no one has gone before. Mm -hmm. But the boldly is still there. Right. And we're still going. Yeah. Just simply broadening the lens to include all the people who are boldly going. So mm -hmm. that's, um, I don't know if that's a help, but I think we're in the middle of it though. We're sort of in the middle of this part of it. And it may be long after our children's grandchildren are gone that we finally get it, but it doesn't mean we stop climbing and stop looking and seeking and unearthing the solutions and the answers to that question. Right. Well, I'm going to go boldly from this interview. Thanks to okay. you. So thank you for your time today. Thanks so much for talking to us. I, I will tell you, I will 
listen and learn and just reflect after this. So I thank you for helping us reflect today. So welcome. I am so grateful to be asked. And uh, I hope everyone out there is stays safe and healthy and stays in that good, right relationship with God and remembers to pray and give thanks. And uh, we'll make it. We'll make it through all of this. Amen. God bless you. <laughs> thanks again. What hope we have, even in the longest night, for the light will overcome. We will not fear, for we know the sun will rise. Hallelujah is our song. What peace we have. Thank you both to the two fantastic and inspiring women, Nancy and Jeanette, for their time today and for their service and ministry to the church. I look forward to more female voices to be raised up in the church, both in leadership and in musical compositional roles, and not solely for their role as female, but for the incredible gifts that they provide. The Spirit works through all of us, and I hope that our voice along with representation of other ethnic voices and groups are raised even higher in the church in the coming generations. I will also provide a link to an episode from the Ministry Monday archives that also addresses this same topic, which was recorded in April of 2018 and features Kate Williams and Sarah Hart. The recording of Hallelujah is Our Song was produced by Oregon Catholic Press. And our theme music was produced by Aaron Schaus. Today's episode was produced by me, Amanda Bruce. That's it for today. With the Spirit's gifts, empowering us for the work of ministry, thanks for listening. Have a great week, and we'll see you back here next Monday. <laughs>